Good morning. Um, I am Debbie Gershenowitz. I'm a, an acquisitions editor at Cambridge University Press, and I have the deep honor to be chatting with Dr. R.J.M. Blackett today in um, what is going to be a series of conversations with Cambridge authors about um, topics in black history that are going to be rolled out over the course of Black History Month. And um, we have just such a rich roster of folks who are researching things uh, from every possible walk of life. So I'm really delighted to kick this off with Richard, who I have a long history with. Richard, for many years, taught history at Indiana, Indiana University, where I was a graduate student. Um, before he went to Indiana, he was at Pittsburgh. And after Indiana, he went on to the University of Houston, where he was the John and Rebecca Moores Professor of History and African American Studies. And for many years now, he has been the Andrew Jackson Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. Um, and we are talking today about his magnum opus, The Captive's Quest for Freedom, Fugitive Slaves, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, and the Politics of Slavery. And Richard and I just received the thrilling news that it's been shortlisted for the Gilder Lerman's Lincoln Book Prize, which, Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, it's pretty much the best book on the history of the Civil War, correct? I think so. <laughs> okay, it's a great book regardless of honorifics that it acclaims, but um, it's, it's really nice to be having this conversation today when we've just gotten this really exciting news. And um, that connection between a single law, the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in 1850, and the biggest crisis, I would say, in American history, um, the Civil War, although, who knows what the future holds? That interplay between law and changing the events of history um, makes this book very, very timely. And, and we'll talk about how that applies to the present time a little bit later on. But in the book, um, Richard has studied for 10 years and written this in about two years about really the, the influence that a law had on this on causing the Civil War and I would say most important is is showing us how the actions um, of slaves and the agency of slaves um, really influenced that war um, slaves are people who unlike perhaps the politicians that were talking about the law and um, talking about um, other politics of race and slavery in the 1850s, they had written records, um, their transcripts, they are visible and written people. Slaves are not, yet we're in a wonderful time of scholarship where thanks to the very hard work of historians, we are recovering voices and paths and, you know, it really, people who, who did not have a voice and did not necessarily write how they influenced history. In the case of Richard's book, not only are the people we're talking about, these fugitive slaves, they didn't leave archives, they kinda, it wouldn't have been a great idea because we're talking about people that are on the run, people that had to stay invisible if they wanted to live. But what Richard has done in this book is made 
a group of people who he argues convincingly, you know, basically helped really bring about the Civil War and show how a law could not work into, he's made them visible. He has literally traced their paths and shown how their travels and how their assertiveness caused the law to basically fail and brought us to civil war. Um, so I actually want to take that point you know, of a journey of slaves escaping from slavery and in some cases hiding, but in also many cases finding networks of black and white anti-slavery activists um, in the border states, in the north, um, in the northeast. What that journey was like, and basically, Richard, the journey you had to take for 10 years to locate these people, where they went, and who they collaborated with. It meant that I, I had to visit places that normally one wouldn't go on a normal thing, normal day. Uh, and what I tried to do is to locate uh, the areas from which they, they escaped to places where they went initially, and then to places where they ultimately ended up. Because those places become the sites of conflict between those who are aspiring for freedom and those who are trying to deny them that freedom. Uh, and it is at those sites of conflict that the story about, uh, the larger story about opposition to this law unfolds. So the, in, the initial determination to escape is a statement about a people, an individual, or groups of individuals' determination to be free. And it is in that act we can say something about what they think about freedom. And then the assistance they receive in opposition uh, to attempts to recapture them broadens the political conflict over areas far removed in many instances from the, the point of their enslavement. So the journey took me to locations, uh, searching for court records, but much of it, much of the journey begins in a kind of exhaustive uh, search of local newspapers, because it's in those local newspapers that uh, these incidents come, come alive. Because in the middle of the 19th century, local newspapers were very proud of their stenographic skills. And they recorded things. Because in many instances, these cases are the only bit of action that's happening locally. Uh, so we have exhaustive accounts. Uh, the problem that I encountered was trying to find precisely where it is they went. And uh, sometimes I was just lucky to find it, and other times it, it just took some dogged searching. And therefore, uh, in order to unravel this history or to put it together, to tell the stories of these individuals' actions, uh, required a lot of patience. And... Uh, the assumption that I had nothing better to do <laughs> with my life than to, than to pull for microfilms and microfilm readers. Um, and this, of course, is in the days before digitizing. So there was no, no chance. And even if the digitizing systems were up and running, I am still suspicious that I'm still wary of the ability to capture all the things that I want. Right. So, so can, you, can you share 
you know, is there a particular story that comes to mind? You know, uh, let's focus on the positive. You know, a, a wild goose chase that ended well. You know, that you were following someone's or, or a group of people's paths. You did not know where it would take you, and then you found this trove. Yeah, uh, my my favorite story of you, one of many, uh, is of uh, Henry Blake, who escaped from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and uh, had the gall to write his owner a letter telling him where he was going and what his final destination would be. His final destination, Henry declared, was Buffalo. And then he proceeded to tell his master, besides asking his master to say hello to his aunt and his, uh, and his mother and his uncle, and to tell him that he wasn't returning, he actually told his master where he was going, what route he was going to take to get to Buffalo. And it becomes quickly apparent in this, from this letter that Henry Blake was simply trying to throw his master, knowing that his master was going to follow, trying to throw him off his tracks. So it's a very calculated, uh, and the letter is, post, is, is dated in New York. Uh, and it's clear that he didn't go to New York. His master wasn't fooled. Uh, his master had this wonderful phrase. He says, he's a clever character. He's going to Philadelphia. So his master sells slave catchers to Philadelphia, and, and the slave catchers return empty-handed and deeply frustrated, saying it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Months later, uh, the master gets a second letter from Banks, this one dated uh, Western Pennsylvania. And he said, I'm not going to Buffalo. I've changed my mind. I'm going to California. It's too cold in Buffalo, right? <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah, I'm going to California. His master wasn't fooled. His master said, oh, yes, Henry has a half-brother that lives in Western Pennsylvania. And he sends a slave catcher after him. Uh, the slave catcher, there was also a community in Washington County just south of Pittsburgh. Uh, that was made up of former uh, of emancipated slaves, manumitted slaves from the Shenandoah Valley. And, uh, and the master, there was also this community in Western Pennsylvania in Washington County made up of former slaves who had been freed from the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, and uh, the master suspected that, uh, that Henry might be going there. Uh, he doesn't find him. And then months later, he gets a third letter from Henry saying, I'm in Hamilton, Canada. So the, the, the story of Henry's and his letter writing and his efforts to resist recapture is, I think, a wonderful story of success. And it raises questions about how he becomes literate. Yes. That I can't tell. Um, but we do know that increasingly in this period, Southern authorities were worried about uh, letter writing among slaves, the slaves and free blacks. Uh, so we have ample evidence for that, particularly from urban areas like Richmond. Right. But Henry Banks is, uh, initiates, and this is an act uh, that has, an, uh, I think, a larger story. One, it's, it's, it's self-emancipation in the literal sense. Mm -hmm. uh, he may have had some assistance from people in Philadelphia, but we have no knowledge of that. So it seems that Henry did this on his own. And I think that's one element of the Underground Railroad 
traditional underground railroad that we have never actually explored in any significant way. So he he gets to, he gets to freedom in Canada, and then unfortunately unfortunately he's lost to history. Right. But nonetheless, one has to tell the story of the man's action, his determination, what he was thinking, what he was trying uh, to achieve. Uh, although the story is not fully, it doesn't fully come to some resolution, a larger resolution. But it comes to the it comes to the end in that he achieves what he sets out to do. Yeah, and I would argue, frankly, that, you know, I mean, resistance, the act of resistance is history making, you know, so you've just told us that that resistance that made him a historical actor and, you know, that kind of resistance that was repeated by so many of the people that you address in this book, some named, some not, some not that's what made the history and, you know, for all the readers at home who have this book, and if you don't have the book, you must go out and get it immediately. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it at cambridge.org. Um, there are wonderful maps in this book um, that Richard and um, Richard's production editor worked very hard on, and they, they're fantastic. If, if you look at pages 16 and 17, it's a large map, and Richard charted all of these communities where anti-fugitive slave law meetings or incidents were and you know he spoke Richard just spoke a little bit about some networks that were in western Philly and during this time you know because of the agency and often the isolated acts of these slaves communities of free blacks of white abolitionists formed and then thus becomes you know the underground railroad and the the abolition network that there are some real hubs of that in buffalo in parts of ohio um in parts of massachusetts but you know i think what richard really demonstrates is how essential the these fugitive slaves during this time were for these communities to to even evolve um and so um, I want to sort of take that, you know, thinking about community and, and agencies to sort of bring it to the present. Um, and um, one of the endorsers um, who just has songs of praise on the back of this book um, is Richard, uh, Richard's esteemed friend and colleague, David Blight, who's at Yale um, and who has just written a mammoth biography of Frederick Douglass. He basically says that the book demonstrates in depth the nature and meaning of America's first great refugee crisis and the explosive politics that followed in its wake. I think many would agree that we are looking at maybe the second great refugee crisis right now. Um, and we are talking about borders and journeys and paths um, and what laws have tried to go forward to either stop it or um, or control it, and you know the the impasse where we are right now. Um, one could argue that it does boil down to refugees. Um, so, Richard, you know, any historian has always asked this. You know, your work. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you 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 were immersed in newspapers of the 1850s, but what what does what does that say about 2019? Yeah, well, I, I, 
I am I am wary about calling these fugitive slaves refugees, uh, but their their experience their experiences and the experiences of people who are trying to to gain entry to the United States on the southern border of the United States has many similarities. Uh, these people may not be fleeing uh, slavery. Uh, but they are in search of a better life. Uh, and what the, what the present policies uh, are doing as a, reflect a kind of reaction to this desire that mirrors some of the, 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 the reactions that were taking place uh, in the middle of the 19th century. For instance, uh, the div dividing up of families. We know that slaveholders divided families, uh, sold them off as their needs required. Uh, what we tend not to understand is that there was also another kind of dividing up that took place in the wake of the fugitive slave law. Imagine a family, a husband and wife, escaping from Maryland or Virginia or Kentucky and settling in a free state. Uh, where they start a family. There are a number of instances in this period in which those that family is captured because both parents are fugitive slaves under the terms of the, the 1850 law. And the question then arises, what do you do with the kids who are born in freedom? Uh, and there are instances in which the family is returned uh, with the argument that uh, once a slave is always a slave, and that is the mother in this case, uh, and therefore where she had the child does not matter. It is a status that trumps any other notions of freedom. Uh, so we have, in, in an odd kind of way, uh, the, the fugitive slave law and the reaction to it by the authorities in places like Pennsylvania keeping families intact, in a way, by returning the entire family to slavery, which is a violation, one would assume, of all, of all that we, we know about Pennsylvania law in this case. Right. Uh, so yes, there, there are families uh, become the victims of these laws. Um, and in, in, the case of the, in the case of the present, uh, policies. They're not even laws that are governing this. These are just right. decisions being made uh, by the authorities to, 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 to separate families, separate children from their parents. And then in this bizarre situation, losing, not being able to reconnect the child to the parent. <laughs> there must be, there must be some kind of fundamental violation of if it's not national law, at least international law, that says that is not acceptable. But um, as you say, as, as a historian of, of dealing with the 1850s, I'm reluctant to, to make clear parallels to what is happening today. I leave it in large measure to the reader to, to see what, what is going on and to, to see that there is a kind of thread that leads back. Where you have inhuman laws and inhuman and inhumane policies, you would get this kind of react. You would get this kind of outcome. Right. Well, this reader being me, I mean, I, 
the, the one thing it struck me when I read early drafts of your preface and it strikes me now, I'm just going to read this. Um, if it is true that laws can only gain their legitimacy by being assented to all they wish to bind, then the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law was doomed to failure from its very inception. It met with strong opposition in and out of Congress for its violations of bedrock principles of jurisprudence and for pandering to slave interests, which have been clamoring for some time for a more effective law to facilitate the recapture of escaped slaves. Um, so I, I think it's- Did I, did I write you that? You wrote that. Yeah, well, I don't know, unless that ghostwriter <laughs> that you, you know, who will remain nameless did it. No, but I, I think that that just has really struck me. And again, especially today, I mean, as you, and as you said, there aren't really laws yet, but, you know, are these vague policies, you know, I, I, I would say right now, yeah, today they're doomed to failure because two resolutions did not pass yesterday. Um, and it's, that's where my interpretation as, as a reader and a wannabe historian really comes in. You know, we don't know, we don't know how this is going to end. I don't think in 1850 they necessarily knew how it was going to end either. So we are, we're living in interesting times. Yes, yes, yes. That is why it's never good to predict where things are going to go. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's why, to some extent, I never used the phrase uh, in the book on the title and the coming of the Civil War, uh, because I wanted to avoid the kind of prediction of an outcome beginning in 1850. Uh, right. But it is clear that what happens in 1850 and the reaction to what happens in 1850 has a profound effect on what goes on in 1860 and 1861. Exactly. Uh, but I didn't, I wanted to avoid telegraphing to the reader what was going to come by putting it in the title. And anyhow, I am, I am deeply suspicious of all these books that have and the coming of the Civil right. War in the title. So, <laughs> so, so if you win sounds... the prize, I guess you won't be able to accept it because well, it is for no, no but, book on the Civil War. no, but it's it's clear by the time I get to the conclusion, I can of say course. something. But I was I was concerned about telegraphing the the, the 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 argument, and and as I say, I'm suspicious about those kinds of arguments. Anyway, yeah, and and I think just just to sort of wrap this up, I think I I think that was the right way to go, especially because this book is fundamentally about the. The humans, the, the fugitives. Um, one of your other endorsers says, "You know, uh, th this is this is most important. This is a human story." And I highly doubt the fugitive slaves were saying, "Oh, hmm, I'll do this. Maybe there'll be a civil yes. war." <laughs> so I I think that is one of the many many important contributions that you have given to um, the field and beyond about how to think about um, what slaves did, not just to change history, but what, what they were doing in that very moment, and that that in itself is history. Well, yes, I hope that's what comes across in yeah, the book. Yeah. So anything more? I mean, I feel like I could sit and chat with you forever, but, um, you know, that's what we do, and we can we can do that at a dinner sometime. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. do you, is there preferable. anything I didn't touch on that you'd like to no, add? No, it's, it's, it, it, it is fine. I mean... 
I am glad that the book has is, uh, has uh, garnered some interest, and but it it always surprises me when my my work does so. So this is a nice nice a nice opportunity to talk about a little bit about the book. Good, good. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and um, will um, the masses will get to listen to this in February. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right, Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. -bye.